0: You're listening to BDO Spotlight on SPACs, a podcast series for regular insights into one of the hottest trends in the capital market space. Joined by an exciting guest list, tune in to hear our hosts from BDO SPAC Practice share their experiences and a wealth of knowledge around the rapidly evolving world of special purpose acquisition companies.
1: So, hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Mike Stevenson. I am the National Practice Leader for BDO's Accounting and Reporting Advisory Services Group, and I want to welcome you to today's uh, podcast on SPACs, uh, fourth in the series. With me today is Tim Caviz. Tim is the National Managing Partner of BDO's SC Serv- C Services Practice. So welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thanks, Mike. So Tim, I thought we'd maybe touch on a couple of things today. Um, the biggest thing we want to touch on is, is understanding and kind of unpacking the new SEC proposed rules related to SPACs and de-SPAC transactions. <clears throat> and it seems like every time things start to normalize in the SPAC world, it certainly feels like something else pops up. And For instance, we, we talked on several podcasts ago where we saw the warrant issue back in uh, the spring of 2021. Uh, Later in the year, we got to some changes related to classification of Class A shares. And now we have some new proposed rules here from the SEC. I don't don't think these really should be a surprise to most people that something came out from the SEC and that their expectations are a little bit different than they had been in the past related to SPACs and uh, D-SPAC transactions the i think the sec chairman gary Gensler was has been fairly transparent in in a lot of his public statements that where he mentioned SPACs that he had wanted to for lack of a better term sync up SPACs uh, ipos the dspac transactions and some of the traditional ipo activities as well as <clears throat> some of the things that happen on, on the back end of those types of transactions so with all of that, we've, like I said, I think we have quite a few things to unpack this morning related to the proposed rules um, and the new guidance. So we'll just maybe get started right away. So if we jump in kind of 30,000 feet and you can get as detailed as you like, um, but kind of at a high level, may- maybe just kind of summarize the-, the rules for us, the proposed rules,
0: and what you think uh, the SEC's intentions behind them is. Sure. Thanks, Mike. That was a good summary. Yeah, the SPACs became super popular the past couple of years. They've been around for quite a while, but it wasn't until about 2019 when they really took off and you saw volumes increase dramatically. And they definitely were on the radar at the commission. And as you mentioned, Chair Gensler uh, was focused on this. He put it on his reg flex agenda last summer. So we knew that the SEC was going to be working on something. So this was expected. We're just obviously waiting to see what came out. So what did come out, there, there was a mix of things. Some very largely expected items, some where the staff is simply codifying guidance that it, their own interpretive guidance that they've been enforcing throughout the process of reviewing um, D-SPAC IPOs, or D-SPAC transactions and SPAC IPOs, um, and then some new things. So diving into it, you know, you can categorize this in a couple of areas. Probably the more significant is enhancing disclosure requirements. Um, And then there's also uh, enhancing liability provisions in the transaction, and then dealing with some regulatory items about status of the SPACs, potentially being under the Investment Company Act or not. Um, So let's talk disclosure requirements. So some of the key things that they've addressed in this proposal is requiring disclosure about the sponsors of the SPAC. You know, more information about the sponsor, Uh, potential conflicts of interest, and then greater information about dilution. There have been questions about what needs to be disclosed as it relates to dilution in the proposed transactions. And now they've just clarified what is required. And additionally, they added some additional requirements that are sort of new. Uh, When when you present dilution in the transactions, it's normally a single dilution calculation. And here they're actually requiring you to present dilution that shows the maximum amount of redemptions that can happen for the transaction to occur, which is largely what SPACs do today, but then add in, in 25% gradients, uh, different levels of redemption and what dilution would look like at those 25% increments of redemptions. So some, some new disclosures there. Uh, A new area of disclosure is, you know, statements on whether or not the SPAC believes the transaction is fair or unfair to investors and whether or not they've received an outside fairness report or opinion related to the fairness of the transaction. Uh, And then there are certain disclosures regarding unique risks in the offering um, and things that might need to be included on the cover page of the prospectus or on the prospectus summary. And some of the other disclosure requirements, you know, there are There's codification of staff views on things like the audited statements of the target operating company, just codifying that those need to be in compliance with PCOB standards, uh, codifying the number of periods that need to be presented in the merger proxy. Uh, There are other disclosures that need to be included in the merger proxy or the S-4, uh, some of which were previously included in the Super 8K. Super 8K, was the document that was filed four days after the D-spac transaction is completed and that super 8k largely mirrored the form 10 uh, registration statement requirements they've moved some of those items out of the super 8k and moved them into the s4 itself and that's things like the description of the business or properties uh legal proceedings changes in or disagreements with accountants things like that uh, another Change had to do with uh, status as a smaller reporting company. Most SPACs qualify as smaller reporting companies, and in the D-spac transaction, you know, post D-spac, the entity was largely able to continue status that the SPAC had up until the next determination date. And under this change, they now require reassessment of status for smaller reporting company status post-DSPAC, so you can't wait until the next determination date. And that could have some very important implications, because depending on how the registration statement was prepared and the number of periods that were presented in the registration statement for the DSPAC transaction, post-DSPAC, if the entity is no longer a smaller reporting company and is filing a registration statement, the number of years of financials that might need to be included in those subsequent registration statements might in fact be greater than what was required in the dspac registration statement Uh, and then another area uh, just require that the registration statement or the s4 get distributed to investors at least 20 days in advance of the shareholder meeting Uh, there are a whole other category of disclosure changes related to projections So in D-SPAC transactions, you can include projections about future performance. And there have been concerns about those projections on whether or not they've been too optimistic. Um, Staff has had some concerns there, so they've attempted to address that through this new class of disclosures or clarifications on their views about these disclosures. So as it relates to these sort of disclosures, you're now required to disclose the purpose of the projections. Um, and the party that prepared those projections. You've got to include material assumptions that underlie the projections and any factors that could materially alter the results. Uh, You have to include if they still reflect the views of management of the SPAC and the target as of the filing date, and if they're no longer that case, why. Uh, If the projections have been based on historical results, then those historical results need to be presented And they're actually kind of treating that similar to how you might view non-GAAP. So if the projections are based on historical, you have to disclose with equal or greater prominence the historical results, and then you can proceed to disclose the projections. And then if there are any non-GAAP projections presented, then the company has to include the standard non-GAAP measure disclosures that would otherwise otherwise be required in financial statements or, you know, your 10-Ks or your 10-Qs. Right. Getting into the liability provisions, you know, there's some enhancements to those liability provisions. And some of the things they added here are things such as adding a new requirement that deems a business combination transaction that's involving a shell company, which that would include a D-SPAC transaction, uh, to involve the sale of securities. And as a result, the Security Act disclosures and liability provisions would then apply to the D-SPAC transaction. Uh, you'd be deeming the private company in a DSPAC transaction to be a co-registrant um, in the registration statement that would be included in you know, on Form S-4 or F-4 if you're a foreign private issuer. Um, they're going to amend the, com- the definition of a blank check company to include SPACs so that SPACs are no longer covered by the Private Securities Lit- Litigation Reform Act of 1995 and the safe harbor for forward-looking statements that that provided. <laughs> uh, and then they add a new rule. That would deem anyone who's acted as an underwriter of the securities for the SPAC's IPO and participates directly or indirectly in the D-SPAC transaction to be an underwriter in the D-SPAC. And that would then subject them to Section 11 liability. And then lastly, you know, status of the SPAC and whether or not it falls under the Investment Company Act of 1940. So they put in some very specific definitions and guardrails for SPACs to make sure that they do not fall within the definition of an investment company. And some of those include stating that the SPAC has to engage in its d spac transaction no more than 18 months after the effective date of the SPAC's IPO registration statement. <clears throat> and then they have to complete the d spac transaction within 24 months. Um, it, it's not unusual with SPACs today for extensions of the SPAC deadline to take place and to extend beyond the 24 months so this is intended to prevent that from happening unless the SPAC wants to be considered an investment company um, they, d- they define the asset composition of a SPAC so the SPAC assets have to consist you know solely of government securities or government money market funds mm-hmm. or cash uh, for them prior to completing the, the D-SPAC transaction for them not to be considered an investment company. And then the business purpose and activities, you know, of the SPAC. The SPAC has to seek to complete a D SPAC transaction. Um, the result of which will be, you know, the surviving private entity will be primarily engaged in or the surviving public entity will primarily be engaged in the business of that target company. So I know that's an awful lot. Um, that, yeah, that,
1: I think that is an awful lot. Um, but what what I hear from that, Tim, is it, it sounds like and I think you mentioned this kind of at the top of your comments that a, a lot of the things that they were doing were either, uh, you know, maybe in some place other than or, or the other. But, you know, and I, and I specifically was thinking about the, those some of those disclosures that were in the, the Super 8K, which largely resembled the Form 10, that they're just pulling back into the, the S4 itself. So. You know, same type of disclosures, just maybe a little bit different timing in which document it's included mm-hmm. in. And then I think when I when I hear all of the guidance and, and how you framed it, it doesn't sound like it should be um, looked at unfavorably. I think what it seems like we're doing here, and maybe you can talk about intention for the guidance or what the driver was, but it it seems like what we're what they're trying to do is is provide investors a little bit better disclosure and understanding of kind of the transaction itself, how it came about, the value of it and and what what the outlook is I mean that those those
0: don't seem like bad things on the surface yeah exactly. Uh, it, as you mentioned a lot of the information was presented it's just the way it was presented, where it might have been presented, uh, the timing of where it hit the investor in the transaction or whether or not it was at the same degree uh, you know of depth and rigor that you might see in a traditional IPO transaction so you you see a lot of these changes and they're really aligning the way a traditional ipo works so a lot of the same sort of information that you might find in in an s1 you'll now see in an s4 for a D-SPAC merger okay
1: so and and maybe some of this was packed into the original the initial comments that you had but maybe if if they were but not not overly in- inclusive can you can you speak to the the piece on investor protection and and why that's important as it relates to the what
0: what they're trying to get out of the proposal yeah i I think there was a belief that a spac merger was a faster way to go public and there were more flexibility that was provided to the parties to the transaction and less liability and i don't believe that the sec or I, i don't think the sec believed that that was necessarily the case And they tried to clarify that by aligning the requirements, by stating, you know, what sort of information really needed to be included in the filing, you know, talking about the sponsor and their potential conflicts of interest, greater clarity there, talking about any compensation that the sponsor might be receiving. Um, Okay. As it relates to projections, you know, greater uh, clarity around how those are derived and making sure that it's clear to an investor, you know, whether or not those... Projections are based on historical information, or are they purely, you know, estimates of future performance? You know, in certain operating companies, they've got a long operating history, so those projections are largely based off historical performance and growth projections, but sometimes the companies are newly formed or newly created entities, and then they merge with the SPAC, and there's not a lot of operating history, so the projections then are largely forecasts. So, you know, some of the requirements there are to to really drive home those points and make sure that that is clear to an investor. And then also, you know, the liability by making sure that it's clear that the operating company is a co-registrant and that the underwriter, if they participated in the SPAC IPO, and then they're participating in the DSPAC merger, uh, that they are an underwriter as well. So it's just extending those liabilities to those parties.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Again, again, Seth, Stuff that all sounds good on the surface. I get I guess when we get into mm-hmm. practice and how, how it may impact deals, deal flow, et cetera, maybe something different, but on the surface, it all sounds like good good things to have. So with, with, with that, what, what do you think might be the short, short-term,
0: long-term impacts of this guidance, if any? Sure. You know, some of the impacts I, I think would be minimal. As I mentioned, some of these things that are in the proposal are largely codifying staff views. And those staff views work their way into D SPAC mergers that are taking place today. And that's through the discussion with the SEC while you're filing the registration statement and the comment letter process back and forth. Um, a lot of those things have already been addressed or dealt with. Uh, the staff has expressed some of their views on questions that have come about in DSPAC transactions at you know, the SEC regs committee meeting, and some of those decisions are codified in those minutes. So here, it's just pulling it together and putting it in the rules themselves. So there, you know, those aspects, I really don't see that there's gonna be much impact whatsoever. Uh, Some of the other items, I I don't think we'll have as big a change. You know, some of the disclosures, accelerating the disclosures to earlier in the process or some greater clarity in the disclosures. Uh, The projections, you know, I, I think the greater clarity around you know what makes up those projections i don't think that in of itself is going to be difficult i think it's going to be better for investors it might you know make investors think twice about certain um transactions it might make them drill in a little harder uh where i see some things that might change is you know in the area of liability you've got parties that might want to take a little bit more time in the transaction to do diligence so for example you know if an underwriter in the IPO is involved with the d transaction and they're now deemed an underwriter and have Section 11 liability in the d transaction, you can expect them to do greater due diligence in the transaction. Uh, you may have the underwriter then requesting comfort letters from the accountants and obtaining opinions from attorneys. Things like that that, that will, by design, slow things down a little you know, as those parties are doing extra work as part of the transaction. Um, to the extent that the SPACs feel that they need to obtain fairness opinions um, by saying whether or not the transaction is fair to an investor, you know that could slow down the transaction slightly and increase cost. It the proposal doesn't require that, but that could be one of the consequences. You know, if they say you have to disclose if you have one, well, if you don't have one, will that become a negative to your transaction? Thereby default, you know, forcing people to get them. You never know how the markets will react on those things, but that is always a potential outcome. So there are a few things there that I think may slow down the speed of the, the D-SPAC transactions, but the, it's not going to slow them down to a level that, that would be greater than a traditional IPO. Right, I think you're just right. going to see it be just aligned with an IPO. It'll be another way of going public. Yeah, and I think, and
1: I think as you mentioned also at the top of the comment was maybe largely intentional, right, is to, uh-huh. to maybe add some... <clears throat> add some time into the transactions themselves. And so maybe we'll delve into this last comment and question here and, uh, and see what your thoughts are. So some are saying that the level of work and the scrutiny on those on those deals, both on the SPAC and the d side are gonna continue to increase from where they have been in the past to, to, to more align with the new rules here. But the consistency is actually gonna be a big positive to, to this portion of the market. Do you, do you expect to see any increase in the quality of SPAC deals and and maybe
0: color white one way or the
1: other, why or why
0: not? Yeah, I certainly think that's the intent of the proposal here, is to improve the quality of deals that come to market. Um, make it basically agnostic to the investor. Had they gone the traditional IPO route versus the D-SPAC route, you know, is the quality of the deal the same? And I think that's the intent of the staff, to make sure that the quality of the deals that are being brought to market is the same, and that it's not the DSPAC is faster, but of lesser quality. It's let's get them up to similar quality. Uh, okay. I, I think that will improve the market. You, you never know, but I think that's the intent, and I can see how that might play out the way it's intended. Well, I think
1: uh, I think time is will certainly tell uh, tell on that front. Uh, Tim, I think we have run the course of our time for today's podcast. I I want to thank you for all your comments and really appreciate your your commentary and insights on the new proposed rules. As I said, I think we're certainly going to see these shake out uh, in the future, and I'm sure they probably won't be the last changes that we see as it relates to this part of the ecosystem in, in SPAC. So uh, th- uh, thanks again, Tim, and uh, thanks to everyone for listening in, and I hope you all have a great day. Thanks, Mike. It was a pleasure being here.
0: Thank you for listening to BDO Spotlight on SPACs. Past episodes and more information about BDO SPAC practice are available at BDO.com slash Spotlight on SPACs. We're also on iTunes and Spotify. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO.